Today, we're going to really dig into it. We'll be talking about faith, we'll be talking about works, salvation, even whether or not you can lose your salvation. Till then, you're going to spend the day in hell! It's going to be a controversial episode for sure. I'm positive that I'm going to offend you at one point or another. So, let's find out together at what point that is. My name is Stephen Cram, and this is my apologies. An apology doesn't just mean saying that you're sorry. An apology can also mean giving a reason for something that you believe. On this channel, we examine various apologies for living a life of faith and virtue. And if I say something that offends you, my apologies. If you're new here, we're in the middle of a series that goes over Mere Christianity, which is a book by C.S. Lewis. This is actually the 17th episode in this series, which is crazy. Time has definitely flown for me, but we're going to be taking a look at a passage that kind of wraps up the second book, which is just basically a section within Mere Christianity. There are four books. So we're looking at the end of book two, which is chapter five. And we're going to be looking at what C.S. Lewis has to say in regards to the role of works within Christianity, or what he would call being good. For a majority of humans throughout history, their religious experience outside of Christianity looks something like this. They perform religious actions or pious works in order to gain the affection or favor of their particular God in hopes that he or she will grant them favor or make their crops grow or whatever it is that they're asking for. The question is, is this how works work in the life of a Christian? Is this how it's supposed to be for us as well? Or is that just something for pagan cultures or other religions outside of Christianity? Now, before we can quite get into what C.S. Lewis says on the matter, we need to start by answering the question, just generally, what are these works that we're talking about? What does it even mean to have works in the Christian context? Good works are a person's exterior acts rather than their interior qualities or their interior dispositions. So to give an example, an exterior act or a good work would be maybe helping an old lady cross the street or giving money to the poor. These are acts that are happening externally in the real world, physical around us, and can be observed by others. And the opposite of that, something that isn't a good work that we, I guess, would put in the quality of, uh, in the category of virtue would be these interior qualities. So that would be like having faith or being a person of humility. Those aren't works. That's just an interior quality. And so works are something that can be done outside. They're, they're not intangible traits. They're done in the physical world around you their actions. If we want to take a scriptural approach to defining works and figuring out what scripture says about them, we can look at Titus 3. It's a great example that gives us a glimpse into what the Bible is referring to when it refers to works. Verse 1 says, remind the believers to submit to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work, to malign no one, and to be peaceable and gentle, showing full consideration to everyone. So here we can already start to see a few positive examples of good works. You have submitting to authorities, you have being obedient, being peaceable, gentle, and considerate towards others. These would be examples of good works. And right after this, we're going to see a brief list of the opposite of good works, bad works or evil works. He says, for at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, misled, and enslaved to all sorts of desires and pleasures, living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So these are the kinds of things that we should avoid. If we have the category of good works, those are the category of evil works. And so this list of good and bad kind of starts to form in our minds what we're talking about when we talk about good works. And then finally, in verse 8, we're provided with a sort of scriptural definition by Paul. He says, And I want you to emphasize these things so that those who have believed in God 
will take care to devote themselves to good deeds. These things are excellent and profitable for the people. So after these lists of good and bad, Titus gives us this quick definition. Titus describes good works as being actions that we do that are excellent and profitable for people. So that's going to be kind of our working definition. You can think of that when you think of any time we talk about good works. Okay, so now that we know what these works are, the question becomes, do we need these in order to be saved? That's the question that's on all of our minds basically whenever we approach religion is what must we do to be saved? What do we need to do in order to attain the good life? I'll let the cat out of the bag right now and tell you the answer to that question is yes. In one sense, we do need works to be saved. But at the same time, no, we really don't need works to be saved. And I understand it might seem like a contradiction at first. This is going to take some explaining, but we'll get there. I promise. In order to answer these questions, we need to clarify first what we mean by saved. This is actually really important. Salvation is often spoken of in three distinct categories or modes, which happen to align with the three basic tenses in language, past, present, and future. In Romans 5 verse 1, you have the past tense of salvation. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can see these words having been there, which emphasizes that this was an event that happened in the past. It has already occurred. And then you see the word justified there, which incidentally is what we typically would call this past tense salvation. We would call it justification. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines it as a legal declaration concerning our relationship to God's laws, stating that we are completely forgiven and no longer liable to punishment. And this happens to us in a moment. In that instant, we are justified. We are declared righteous before God, and Christ's righteousness is given to us in that moment of justification. And so this is the past tense form of salvation. So if you can speak of a past tense moment in which we are justified, Scripture also speaks of a present tense sort of salvation, which we commonly call sanctification. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you faithful, he will surely do it. And this verse, this passage, is a prayer that God would sanctify the believer completely. Sanctify is a churchy word. It's not something you would really hear in normal everyday life outside of the church, but it comes from the Latin sanctus, which means holy, and fico, I think is how you pronounce it, which means to make. So if we put that together, Paul is praying that God would make the believers holy, that God would work in your life to make you holy. In addition to that, Paul also, you can see in this prayer that uh, he asked that the believer would be kept blameless, meaning preserved from sin, sins of the past, sins that could arise in the future, that these uh, believers would be kept blameless from these things and kept persevering in their faith. So not only were we saved in this past moment, justified, we are in the present being saved in the sense of being made holy and being preserved from sin and in the faith. Sanctification. The third and final way we can speak of salvation is the ultimate and future sense of salvation. And this is what we call glorification. It can be found in passages like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, which reads, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who, by God's power, are being guarded through a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here you see God is guarding the believer for an inheritance and a salvation, not now or not in the past, but a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's a future salvation. And it corresponds with the resurrection from the dead and those being declared righteous before the judgment seat of Christ and ultimately being glorified in the presence of God. That's why we call it this end of world type situation, glorification. It's the final kind of final salvation that will be our state for the rest of eternity. If you have believed in God, been justified, been sanctified, and finally glorified. Those are the three modes of salvation. So to review, we have past tense salvation, justification. We have present tense salvation, sanctification. And we have future tense salvation, glorification. Now, at this point, you might be asking yourself, what was the point of going through all that? Does it really matter? And it it really does. It's critical to understanding what C.S. Lewis is going to say, and even it gives us categories with which we can think about the important matters of where do works fit in when it comes to this whole picture of salvation. All of this so far has been leading up to examining what Lewis has to say in the passage, and finally, we've arrived at the point. If you haven't watched or listened to the last episode, number 16, I think it'd be worth it to pause here and check it out real quick and then come back. But if you don't want to do that, I'll give you a quick summary of what was talked about. Lewis established that just like we receive physical life from our parents, and that's a free gift that you really had nothing to do with, you didn't ask to be born, in the same way we receive our spiritual life, not of any act of our own. It's gifted to us by God. And the way in which this life, which he calls the Christ life, comes to us or is communicated to us, uh, what is the word he uses? The way that it's conducted to us is through three things, belief, baptism, and holy communion. These are the three conductors that he talks about and we talked about in our last episode. It's helpful to remember at this point, for myself even, that for Lewis as a, to quote himself, a very ordinary layman of the Church of England, a layperson, a normal devoted member of the Church of England, he would not have conceived of any of these three conductors, belief, baptism, and holy communion, he would not have thought of these as being good works for a very simple fact. That if we remember our definition of good works from Titus, Titus 3 says that they are actions that we do that are excellent and profitable for people. And in the view of Lewis and in the view of many denominations, belief, obviously, and then baptism and holy communion are not things that we are actually doing when it comes to the working. It's things that they're things that God is doing. God is giving us belief. God is giving us his the son, uh, his son's body and his son's blood. God is giving us the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit and baptism. And so these are actions of God and therefore not good works of our own. As is explained by an article in the American Anglican Council, which I found super helpful in being able to explain how C.S. Lewis probably would have thought of this. It says, baptism is a work of God. It is a divine work. It is not invented by man, but commanded by God and witnessed to by the gospel. The foundation of the sacrament of baptism is not the faith of the one being baptized. Rather, it is the word of command and promise spoken by our Lord. So this is some further justification. This specific one is an example of the sacrament of baptism, but these three conductors of Christ's life to us that Lewis speaks of, he would not have thought of them as good works because they're not things that we're doing. They're things that God is doing. And this sets us up to actually read through our section for today and digest what Lewis has to say in regards to works. It can be a little dicey at times, so let's stick together and we'll get through it. He says, Do not think I am setting up baptism and belief and holy communion as things that will do instead of your own attempts to copy Christ. Your natural life is derived from your parents. That does not mean it will stay there if you do nothing about it. So Lewis again is referring to these three 
conductors of grace, and he says that they're not quite enough. He adds in that it's not just enough that you've been baptized, affirmed your belief, and you go to church on Sunday to take the Lord's Supper. You actually need to copy Christ in his point of view. And what does that mean exactly? In his point of view, you actually need to do something that he calls copy Christ. So what does that mean exactly? Well, if we think about these three modes of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification, we can apply the terms here. Lewis says that you've taken those initial steps, right? You've been justified. Now, you need to continue in the present tense, copying Christ, which belongs to that category of sanctification. Someone who takes those initial steps, but doesn't carry on through the Christian life by imitating Christ, might be called by scripture, lukewarm. And this comes from a passage in Revelation chapter 3, specifically verses 16 and seven, uh, 15 and 16, where Jesus is speaking to the church in an ancient city in Asia Minor called Laodicea, and he criticizes them. He says, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. How I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. So notice in this passage, what, in this passage what Jesus is looking at. He's looking at their deeds, and he calls them lukewarm. And as a result, he's going to vomit them out. He's going to discard them and reject them completely. We definitely do not want to be in that category of lukewarm. If I want to make tea or coffee, I need hot water. If I just got done from doing work outside, I want a cold glass of water. But in either of these cases, if I'm given lukewarm water, it's really not good for anything. And I would spit that water out. I don't know if I'd really be that dramatic, but it's not what I'm looking for. And in the same way, Jesus is not looking for lukewarm believers, but rather people who are willing to commit to a life of imitating him for the rest of their lives. Lewis continues, you can lose it by neglect, speaking of salvation, or you can drive it away by committing suicide. You have to feed it and look after it. But always remember, you are not making it. You are only keeping up a life you got from someone else. In the same way, a Christian can lose the Christ life, which has been put into him, and he has to make efforts to keep it. But even the best Christian that ever lived is not acting on his own steam. He is only nourishing or protecting a life he could never have acquired by his own efforts. Now, there is admittedly some theological controversy between the people that think you can truly lose salvation once you've gotten it, and those who think that if you walk away from the faith, you haven't lost anything. It just reveals that you never had salvation in the first place. And these two camps have various ways of proving that they're right from scripture and from philosophy and things like that. It's not really something we have time to get into today, but regardless of which stance you take, the point that Lewis is making remains the same. The Christian life requires action. It is not a one and done thing. Sanctification seems more and more to be made up of good works that you do in the way that you maintain the Christ life, which has been given to you initially as a free gift. Just like you would if you were going to go to the gym or eat in a healthy way to maintain the body that was freely given to you. You need to exercise the Christ life by doing good works that he would have you to do. So what should we take from this? Are we given justification for free? And then sanctification and glorification are things that you need to work, do good works in order to earn. Is the first mode of salvation a gift and the other two are earned? Well, let's see what Lewis has to say about this. He writes, that is why the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. They hope by being good to please God. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside him. He does not think that God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, but it becomes bright because the sun shines on it. 
So Lewis says that the good that we do, the sanctification in our lives, comes from that Christ life that was given to us in justification. The very thing that was put into us at the beginning in our initial justification is flowing out of us in the form of good works. God actually makes us good the way that the sun makes a greenhouse roof shine. The greenhouse doesn't shine on its own to impress the sun and convince the sun to shine on it. The greenhouse shines because the sun is already shining on it. And in this sense, all of Christianity flips religion on its head, whereas other religions, as we mentioned, are made up of people doing good works and religious rites in order to appease a God. In our situation, God has already shown us pleasure, and he makes us good. All the good works we do come from him as the originator, pouring into us, and then us pouring out. So to summarize this passage from Lewis, one, it's not enough that we just go through the motions of Christianity. We don't want to be lukewarm Christians. Two, we need to imitate the life of Christ by doing good works. It's necessary. But three, luckily, that Christ life that lives within us empowers us to do these good works. We're not alone trying to strive towards God. He's working in us. But you may say, what about James 2 saying faith without works is dead? If you've ever heard a conversation about this dichotomy between faith and works, if they're both necessary, if they add together to make salvation or whatever, you've probably heard James 2 being brought up. So let's take a look. It says, what good is in my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So at first glance, admittedly, this passage seems to be teaching us that faith plus works equals salvation, that you need both in conjunction, and they kind of combine together to create salvation or to enable us to acquire salvation in some way. Faith plus works equals salvation. But that conflicts with a passage like Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, which says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This passage says pretty clearly that we are saved by grace through faith and specifies that it is not by works. So you seem to have in this verse, as opposed to the James verse, here you have we're saved by faith and grace, but not works. So it can't be faith plus works equals salvation. What's going on here? Do James and Paul just have complete disagreement with one another? Of course not. This is all scripture. It's inspired by God and therefore can't be in conflict with itself. But what we have to do is look at the words of James very carefully and not just assume right away that what he's talking about is a simple process of figuring out the two things that are required for salvation. This passage in James asks the question, what are we talking about if someone says they have faith but does not have works? We're examining this person who claims to have faith, but no Christ life is seems to be working in him. He doesn't have any sanctification. And so therefore, James asks the question, can that kind of faith save him? That kind of faith that he determines to be a dead faith? And he seems to be saying that a dead faith, one that doesn't have any works, you could say the faith of a lukewarm believer, is not the kind of faith that actually saves you. What is required would be the opposite, a living faith, a faith which exhibits good works because Christ is working in you. Therefore, you have some kind of reason to look at yourself or look at those around you and say, we are growing in our faith. We are being sanctified by the Christ life working in us. Therefore, we have claimed to say, I am being saved here, and I can hope that this will lead to my, I guess, this direction. I have to remember that it's mirrored for a camera. I have, right, because I have been justified, I seem to be 
acquiring sanctification from the Holy Spirit. And I therefore can assume glorification is a hope that I can have. James wants you to ask yourself that. What kind of faith do you have? That's the topic in question here. Is your faith living or dead? And the primary way you can know is by examining whether or not your life copies Christ and is indeed growing in its ability to copy Christ, the way Lewis talks about. If you copy Christ and the works that he did, then you can have great confidence that his Christ life is dwelling within you and it will continue to do so. So it's not the case that faith plus works equals salvation. Rather, a living faith will result in salvation, which will result in good works that copy Christ. It's a progression rather than a X plus Y equals Z. And you may think that this is just my view or this is just Lewis's view or some kind of thing that we came up with or I came up with just for this video. But truly, it's what the reformers were talking about when they said the idea of we're saved by faith alone or sola fide in the Latin. It's understandable that there might be confusion around this because the idea of sola fide was caricatured in the day of the reformers. It's been caricatured ever since by opponents to that theory. Often people will say that because we believe in faith alone, works are totally disconnected and they have nothing to do with the life of a believer. And that can't be further from the truth. So let's look at a couple of reformers and reformation writings to see what they were talking about in their own day and what they meant when they had the idea of faith alone, which of course is not something that any of the reformers said themselves. It's rather later on a, a way that people synthesized their works and made them into easily digestible concepts. Total side note, but we're going to look at that now. What do the reformers actually say on the matter of saved by faith alone? First, John Calvin, a leader in the reformed movement. He was responding to the Council of Trent, a Catholic, a Roman Catholic council, which criticizes views. And he said, I wish the reader to understand that as often as we mention faith alone in this question, we are not thinking of a dead faith. Remember James, which worketh not by love, but holding faith to be the only cause of justification that initial salvation. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone, just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet the sun is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light. He says it right there. Faith alone justifies, and yet faith which justifies is not alone. And so you have that initial salvation which is acquired by faith alone, but that faith working through love gives the Christ life to us, to us, which results in us doing good works. So that faith which saves us is never alone. We don't discount works altogether. They're just not a component of what's actually saving us. They're a result of us being saved. Similarly, you could see this in the epitome of the formula of Concord, which is a Lutheran confession, and the epitome of it is further explanations of what's written in the formula of Concord. And this passage in particular says, But after man has been justified by faith, then a true living faith worketh by love, so that thus good works always follow justifying faith, and are surely found with it. If it be true and living, for it is never alone, but always has with it love and hope. After a man has been justified by faith, thus good works always follow justifying faith and are surely found with it. That's a good word and a good summary of what Luther is talking about and the Reformation has talked about for the last 500 years. If you enjoyed this content today, please like the video and subscribe. Follow my channel for more videos just like this and feel free to check out the rest of the Mere Christianity series if you haven't listened to it already. If you want to support me further, you can check out my Locals page. I'll put a link in the description for you to check that out. It's kind of like Patreon, a way of supporting creators like myself. 
Until next time, my name is Stephen Cram, and this has been My Apologies. No one can boast. Printer maintenance is in process. This happens every time I try to record. I think it's the devil. We're just going to have to wait. I don't know if you can pick it up on the mic or not, but I'm not going to risk it. This passage says pretty clearly, more maintenance. Jeez. I just need to turn that dumb thing off. All right.